Hello, I'm Peter Dunn from the University Works Communications Office, and I'm here today with Professor Sue Bridgewater, who's an associate professor at Warwick Business School. And uh, we're talking about her book, Football Management, um, published by Palgrave Macmillan and available from all the usual outlets. And what I think distinguishes this book is the fact that many of the points in it are illustrated by a number of quotes and assertions by actual football managers that she's interviewed throughout the period of her research. While they're quoted anonymously, they do provide some interesting insights and hopefully that will come out during this podcast. So uh, you say that, and, uh, that you join a number of people in saying that football has become the new metaphor for business. It used to be orchestras that people talked about as being business like being orchestras. But you and a number of other commentators now say that football is the new uh, paradigm for describing business because of resource constraints and other issues. Is, is that the case? Yeah, well, Drucker was the, the, the person who suggested orchestras where you would sort of be um, bringing in different sections, you know, like functional expertise, like the violins and the, the percussion and so on. Um, but I think over time, um, people have realised that businesses have changed. There's a degree of flexibility required now where you might not say, um, no, sorry, I know you're a violinist, but could you just have a go on the trombone today? Um, but actually, in the, the knowledge economy and the, the world that we're in now, um, many organisations have to deploy their resources flexibly. And you might actually have a preferred role, but you might actually cover something else as well. And also, particularly in, in terms of... Um, the types of employees we have, these are very talented individuals, particularly in the knowledge sector, creative industries or software or um, any of gaming or any of those, those sectors that are growing up. Um, they're different types of employees who basically are empowered to move between organisations. So managing them is somewhat different to the way it would have been previously. And so actually this the idea of the... Um, Football as a metaphor came out with Bolshover and Brady a few years back. But I'd been working in, in football management since 2001, working with managers, working with the League Managers Association and running courses. And I'd never actually written about it, because partially because I, I was kind of slightly self-conscious, didn't want to, because I have got a privileged position, mm. to actually be revealing too much. And I wasn't too sure about doing this and entering this debate. Although obviously it was very clear that as I analyse all the statistics for the league managers and, and look at football management trends, that I had got views on this. But finally came round to thinking that, you know, the time was right to actually write this book because in talking to the managers, there are so many things about being a football manager from their side, for the football sector, that um, it's very turbulent, the managers lose their jobs and there are things that, you know, you really need to draw attention to because for the good of football, the, these things shouldn't be happening. But also from, from the business side, from those people who are interested in management and also, um, particularly if they have an interest in football, to be looking at some of the analogies and some of the, the actual things that people say that add richness to the picture, to have it almost an inside view of, of the kinds of dilemmas that face a football manager. Because so many of those things actually strike a chord. When you talk about it, you find a set of people who say, you know, that's exactly what happens to me when I work in um, the housing sector. That's exactly what it's like to be a city trader. That's exactly what it's like in quite diverse, to be a headmaster who's judged by league tables. And people are drawing their own analogies. Um, and so I thought I'd have a look at something that works, if you like, on two levels. A football book for football managers and the football sector, but also a book that looks at the extent to which those metaphors that have grown up are actually useful for, for managers in other sectors. From the book, the, the key 
skill set you seem to identify for football managers seem to be all really HR, human resources related. Talent wars, identifying talent, getting the optimal performance out of a team of talented individuals, keeping the reserves motivated, deciding when to let key players leave and at what price. Is that the dominating management skill? Is that what the managers were saying to you? Well, I think obviously the, the football side of it is their operations. So their day-to-day -day business, the football side, unless you actually can spot a player, unless you can actually um, understand a game, determine what tactics and which substitutions and so on, you're unlikely to be terribly effective as a football manager. So that goes almost without saying, which is why it doesn't, you know, this is not a coaching book and it mm. doesn't get massive uh, um, coverage. That's for other people to talk about the football side of it. Um, the marketing side of it, if you like, is, is, is there too because it's all about the fact that they are under the spotlight in the media and how they present themselves and whether they get credit. There are some very good managers who were very bad in their relations with media and basically the media were almost waiting for the opportunity to get rid of them when results went against them. Whereas there are others who have actually got quite a positive relationship and always friendly and so on and they seem to get a little bit more leeway when the results go against them. So there are other elements mm. in there and of course they're all using technology now with prozone and analysis and <laughs> those things in the game so they like any other business have got all of these different things going on they have big financial pressures and a need to understand budgets and the finances of clubs and, and you know in some cases to understand the context so that it's important that they understand why players might have to be sold because the club has to to do that i was looking at scunthorpe just about to stay in the uh, championship and um talking about their best striker of this season, probably having to be sold at the end of the season for financial reasons. They've got all of these different things going on. And yet, if you say, what is it that makes some of them able to outperform what they should be able to deliver with the sets of finances and the resources that they have available, it probably does come back to some of the HR elements, the ability to motivate, the ability to bring together a team, to beginning to um, get people to raise their game um, to um, get a talented team working together effectively I suppose those are HR mm. things It appears from the book that the management experience in this business is a much more intense one and frightening one than many other businesses it seems to be much more results oriented and much more fast paced like the games themselves I guess and the individual managers are under particular pressure you talk about the studies of their heart rates, you talk about their poor eating you talk about their constant public scrutiny of every gesture. Uh, you talk in particular about how Graham Taylor was treated by the media, as you were talking earlier. And uh, there was an interesting quote at one point where the managers were compared to graduate trainees in the city as burning the candle at both ends. It was described to me as life in the fast lane, that you, you know, you're driving up and down motorways, particularly in the lower leagues, not so much in the Premier League, where they're probably on and off planes, around international matches and, and looking at you know potential opposition and so on. Um, but in a lot of cases, they are working exceptionally long hours. This is 24-7 because these aren't people who even get weekends off. I know mm. in some other sectors you don't too, but that's their match day, you know, weekends. Um, they might get one day off midweek, but they're probably out watching somebody else's match on that occasion. So this is, is relentless and uh, it's very, very high pressure. The thing that I've actually become most aware of in actually working with football managers over the years is the human cost of all of this. I mean, to us, it's all kind of almost part of the spectacle um, that people bet on which manager is most likely to be sacked first at the beginning of the season, and it's almost as exciting as the match itself. 
the media, you know, at one point Roy Keane at Ipswich, they, they said there were more cameras trained on him than there were on the actual yeah. match. So it was less about the sporting outcome than it was about, is he going to be dismissed? But when you talk to individuals and you work with them, you think, is this a, a really... I mean, these people have, have grown up through football, they've played from an early age, they really want to stay in that game, they would like to make it, the chances of them even getting a job are slim because uh, if you looked in England, and I know I was looking mainly at English managers, but it has to be said that the managers in England are not all English for a yeah. start. They're international, and it's a game that's viewed globally, so, I mean, it, it applies outside of the UK. But they're actually, you know, you might get 100 good applicants for every job, and half of the first-time managers get sacked and don't come back. So there's this massive pool full of people with a bit of experience out there fighting for these jobs. When you take the job... You might actually take it knowing that the past three incumbents have all been dismissed because they couldn't deliver what the chairman expected or the fans expected with the resources that they had. And yet, the manager still takes the job. And you sometimes say to them, why did you do that? Because you must have known what was going to happen to you. You'll be the next. It's like uh, Christians to lions or, mm. or whatever. Um, and they say, yeah, but I, I really thought I could do something different. And I, I really, you know, hoped if I got long enough that I could actually do all of those HR things and build a team and so on. And yet, actually, the timescales are such that they're not even being judged on what they can do, maybe on getting something out of the previous persons or the person before that set of uh, resources within a club. It, it's almost an undoable job. And what's most frightening to me for a manager is the fact that it seems to be getting worse. Can this be right? Because this is healthy for the game. Then that's where you actually think, right, OK, let's, let's take this as a metaphor and imagine it for any other business. If in any other business we had the degree of turbulence that we see in football management, if we had that in our schools, in our hospitals, in our commercial enterprises, and we were not over a year on financial results, but over a weekly progress meeting, it didn't go so well. And we, therefore, we got rid of the person in charge and changed our direction. Uh, we would be, we'd be an outcry and we'd be saying this is ridiculous because it just takes money out because that whole process of finding and recruiting someone else and putting them in and that process of bedding in the new person and, you know, setting the direction and getting the strategy in place and, and maybe new personnel and all of those other things would actually be counterproductive and result in, in poorer performance. Uh, and yet, in something like football, we're actually it, it is almost the extreme case of what would happen if you actually pursue that line. So we've got this focus on results in all kinds of different sectors. Football is, if you like, almost a cautionary tale of what happens if you actually become so dominated by results in the short term that you actually say, oh, it must be something that you're failing to do. You must not be motivating the team. You've lost the dressing room. And actually keep changing and what it actually does to, to results. And that's why in this book there is real data which actually can track that over time. It's quite interesting to think about that, broaden it out and think, OK, if that were my business and that's my focus on results and I'm being judged on some form of league table in a university or a hospital or a school, then um, if we become too short-termist, then those are the things that could happen. You mentioned your data, to quote some of it, you looked at experience... And you point out that managers with no previous experience over a year uh, at the top flight average about 33.12% wins in a season. Those with 10 years or more experience average 45.1% wins over a season. How can they possibly get to that level of experience when, as you also point out, 
um, assistant managers rarely seem to progress to become managers where you also suggested people that are operating in the lower leagues rarely get the chance to operate in the higher league. There doesn't seem to be the progression left that will get you this experience that you think is important. Well, that's one of those things. I mean, it is important. I mean, actually, at one point, somebody said, can you just isolate out just experience? And, of course, it's more complex than that because those people who've got 10 years' experience, they are, if you like, the survivors, and they're normally working at clubs with better resources, and therefore part of them getting higher results might be because of resources and other things as well as just the manager. However, um, there is evidence, if you strip it out, that um, if you leave your manager in place for longer, that they do better and they learn and they put that in place. And also we can go back and say, you know, you could have sacked Alex Ferguson at an early stage of his management career at Manchester United. It was, you know, within how many games, if you believe what people are saying now, and a certain Mark Robbins goal may have saved his, his future. And, and we now look back with the benefit of hindsight and say, wouldn't that have been a stupid decision? But... Then you've got to say, well, OK, how many others are actually the wrong decision? We're firing them for the wrong reasons. We're taking people who might have the potential to go on to be very good future managers. And because maybe they're in, in a, a situation where they, they, can't, they can't achieve what is being expected of them, it just isn't possible with the type of players. Even if they get uh, exceptional performance, um, much better than might be expected for a period of time once they get some injuries and suspensions and they haven't got the depth of, of squad and so on, that they're unlikely to sustain that for any long period of time. Um, we know that, logically we know that, but we seem to have created a system where we're actually working against bringing through those people and giving them the amount of experience that they need to give them the chance of growing. And we, we have this debate on and on about having a an English England manager or having a manager from you know a particular country who goes on to be the national manager and so on. Where are we going to develop these people? Yes, it's not just the managers being fired and not having a chance uh, to succeed, but those are less in the limelight you would have thought assistant managers who would have thought could quietly be building experience. You indicate that that's all well and good, but they never seem to make the transition uh, or much rarely make the transition into full management. Is, is that a problem? Well, I mean, it's interesting because I think some people will tell you that they are very different roles and they might attract different characters. And it's a bit like in any business you could say, you have your leader, visionary, leader, figure, um, and you might have other people who are brilliant at what they do, but they have a different set of skills and you could take them and stick them in the leader's position and actually they wouldn't be comfortable there or they might not be good communicators or they're not comfortable with a level of scrutiny or profile or whatever. Um, so I think there's an element where you say, well, this may be that the assistant manager is somebody who likes to be close to the players and might actually be a good coach and might be a good set-and-in-command but is not necessarily a great leader. However... If you can't come straight into being a football manager because there aren't enough posts and you are being asked to get experience in coaching senior level players in order to even do your qualifications, then you do have to start somewhere and you can see a position where a fantastic player who has been the captain and who's you know, really got that potential and everybody recognises that struggles to find a route through into being a manager straight away, arguably should be gaining experience before they are in that degree of limelight and traditionally would have come into being a player coach or a, you know, some form of almost apprenticeship for being a manager in the future and might have started at a lower league and worked their way up. And those progressions seem to have gone. Hmm. And so it's actually, when you look at it, you think, well, we'd be looking at saying, where do we develop our 
talent from? Where do we get our future managers from? Um, how are we going to make sure that we have the best managers coming through, the best people getting the jobs? And it's not clear that they are going to get the best managers because some of those possibilities have, have gone just because of changes that have happened. Sometimes those may be unintentional um, consequences of the way we've gone and the way our clubs are owned and, and other things. And there's a big focus on leadership, but you also say in your book that contacts matters as much, perhaps more, than leadership sometimes in football. Do you want to expand on what you meant by yeah, that? Yeah. Um, actually, if you look at the leadership literature, there's, there's people who say it's individualistic and people who say it's context. Individualistic is it's something to do with you as a leader that makes you successful. So, you know, we've gone right through from it's it's like your characteristics, you know, tall but not too tall and, you know, commanding yeah. and, and all of those kind of things. And then we went, hold on a moment, you know, can't be as simple as that because you've got people who fit the bill in, in a lot of those senses but actually aren't good leaders and other people who don't fit the bill who are great. So maybe it's behaviour. Maybe it's doing something that inspires followers to follow you and, and all of those things. We've now moved on in that school to something called transformational leadership and talking about visionary leaders and all of those kind of things. Alongside that, in the early 80s, was a school that came in and said, is it anything to do with the individual leader? Is it in fact to do with the availability of resources or the international experience of the organisation or other things that actually influence how successful that organisation is going to be rather than the individual leader? I think by and large, people, those two schools have fought it out over the years. Neither seems to be wholly right or wholly wrong. We've taken elements of both of them and, and people are still researching both of them. In football, you could see elements of the individual. We can all pick out individuals who have got you know, a certain style, the Mourinho, the Alex Ferguson, the Arsene Wenger. They're quite different to each other, but there's something about them as person, personalities that has kind of encouraged the people who are in their teams. But at the same time, um, all the evidence from Deloitte and Touche and from other research that's already out there that talks about the role of finance um, and says that, you know, teams with better squads do better, which is not at all surprising because if you've got better players, mm. then mm. you are likely to get a better degree of, of performance, assuming you're a half-decent manager who can actually knit that set of people together into a team. Um, so there's obviously a number of different things. And some people actually argue that it's entirely down to finance context. So that could also include things like ownership structure and so on. And other people say, no, well, hold on a moment. It's to do with the manager and that personality. And what I was doing was trying to sort of look at the evidence a bit and say, well, actually, particularly at the Premier League, my research seems to support um, the role of finance that by and large, all else being equal, people do fall into um, you know the, the league rankings that you might expect. Then it becomes interesting to say, and those people who consistently over-deliver in that case, which include people like Tony Pulis at Stoke in the Premier League, uh, and he's done that in a number of different clubs, or Sam Allardyce and, and others who've, who've come through, then why is it that they are actually doing better than you might expect them. And then you do come into the more mm. individual things, and we've talked about some of the characteristics and got some um, some quotes, not just from, from managers, you know, but other people around about, about those characters. So why do you think these people have thrived and succeeded and overperformed and just looked at what kind of characteristics people come out? And it's interesting because those may be things. It's things like passion, drive, resilience, um, will to win and so on and they might actually be the sorts of characteristics that are uh, important for leaders in all kinds of sectors. As well as context limiting managers and leaders 
Uh, I get the idea from the book that perhaps the leaders are also being limited by the fact they're not always allowed to lead. But there seems to be so many people now describing themselves as CEOs of the club or non-executive director of the club or director of football. And as a manager, it seems confused as to who's doing the leading or who's making the decisions. And there also seems to be a shift in power, some managers seem to claim, from the manager to the boardroom. Is that a real problem or is that a real issue for football management as a discipline? I think in terms of the governance of football, it's obviously very complex. It's very political, but then it's very political in lots of sectors. I think one of the things that stands out is obviously if you are a chief exec of a corporation, then you will probably have the ability to make strategic decisions about where that corporation is going. In football, even someone who was a chief exec said to me, I've been a chief exec in other sectors and I could actually make decisions. You know what? In football, I don't really have any power. I'm more of a chief operating officer. I'm doing stadium safety checks. <laughs> the people who have the real power are the people who've put the money in, the owners, the investors, not the people who are actually running the club. So if you then look at the, the football manager, who's not quite often not on the board, might respond to the board. Sometimes you have a director of football who does have a seat on the board, uh, but then you've got a relationship between those two individuals as well. But you might actually have a, a football manager who effectively then is some kind of functional or operational kind of manager in this structure. They are expected to deliver. They are sacked if they don't deliver. But they might have relatively little ability to influence. So in some cases, they are being told these are the resources that are available. That's quite understandable. A business can't live beyond its means. Uh, but if what's being expected of them and what they have to work with just don't match up, hmm then it becomes very difficult because effectively there's very little that manager could do that's going to make a difference. Yeah, they can out-deliver for a period of time, but interestingly in football, if you do, um, expectations and pressures placed when you seem to get higher because if you actually get promoted against all the odds with a club, then the next year the fans say, that's fantastic, you should push on, we'll get into Europe next year, rather than that was a massive overachievement, you know, well done. It just it will set actually, the goals you know, higher. So you look, you know, it's, it's almost a thankless task being a football manager and you really want to see the people who do well, who are showing their ability mm. to do it, get the opportunities to go on and thrive, but it doesn't always work that way. I want to come down to, you talked about personality already and you indicated a number of different personality types. You seem to be suggesting, as far as football management goes, personality type doesn't seem to matter. You can get extroverts or introverts, you can get passionate motivators, each totally different from the other. Is there no one personality type that makes a good football manager? I don't think there is a personality type as such, so I, I really honestly don't think it's extrovert or introvert or those things. And there are people who come through and succeed where you know, others say, oh, that was a bit of a surprise. And I remember sort of reading that Alex Ferguson had said of Mark Hughes, oh, he isn't one of the ones that I would have picked out and, and seen as a future manager because he was a quiet guy and he sat there. And Mark says, but I was a student of the game and I was reflecting and sort of forming my views on what I would do if I were a manager. And obviously he's gone on to be successful. Um, so I don't think it's about personality. I think there are common characteristics so if you actually look at the types of behaviours and the types of motivation and, and, and the will to win, the fact that they're all very competitive, the fact that they are prepared, they, they, they live and breathe football and they are prepared to, to do this, you know, 24-7 body and soul. Uh, they really care about when they win and you hear all of these stories about, you know, they lost a match and it's just not worth talking to the manager that night. And I think that the passion and the, the resilience that really came out for me because... I kind of look at it and I think, why 
Why would you do mm. this? Why would you put yourself through that? And again, talking about types of managers, you point out there's an eagerness from clubs often to hire great players, outstanding players to become managers. But it doesn't always quite work out. You mentioned Bobby Charlton at Preston North End, Maradona with the Argentinian national team. as examples of maybe where this hasn't been a terribly good idea. I think we all like to think, and I think um, chairman and fans like to think, because somebody was a fantastic player, maybe a fantastic captain, um, and that therefore, you know, leader in, in people's eyes, that they will be the ideal candidate to be the manager. Um, this could happen. I think in many cases we we've, you know, we, we have views that suggest that they're no more or less likely to be successful because the attributes that might make them successful as a manager could be something different. So whereas being a fantastic player, it could be intuitive, as in some of those cases. So therefore the person has great natural skill, but that doesn't mean they can actually communicate it to someone else. Um, but it's certainly individual. So getting the best out of yourself as a player, various people have described me as being quite selfish. That it was about your nutrition and your training and what you did, um, and you, you cared about yourself. Yes, you played a role as part of a team, but essentially you were looking after yourself. As a manager, you are trying to get the best out of a team of individuals, and not all of those people who were great players will necessarily have the attributes that will make them great managers. Some of them will. Mm. And in fact, oddly enough, when we, we were doing re I was doing research with Amanda Goodall at Warwick Business School and, and Larry Kahn over in Cornell. We were analysing the data. There did seem to be a relationship between uh, how good a player you were and how good a manager you came. And it seemed like those people who'd been great players had almost more impact at the lower levels. So maybe that, you know, how great they were was inspiring and actually pulled people along at that level. Um, at the higher level, where the players themselves were better, more skilled, it seemed like it didn't necessarily need the great player to be a successful manager. So maybe that there was enough of that in the players themselves that they could cope with someone who maybe wasn't the greatest player, maybe um, was a good coach, motivator, manager, um, and that it, it seemed that there was less impact at the top level than there was lower down. Can there be a marketing or a PR benefit of picking a local hero to be a manager? Oh, or? absolutely. I mean, I think that's part of the reason why it's so tempting because if you do put in the fan hero and you put in someone who um, will be a popular mm. choice, then you're probably going to sell more season tickets and you're going to fill your stadium and it has a re revenue benefit, whether it turns out to be mm. the right move down the line or not. I don't know. Sometimes... It can be an equally bad choice to go for an experienced player because you talk in the book about some managers being better managers because they've taken time to think about their game and how to play and how to pass those skills on. And you reference uh, Ericsson, uh, Marino, uh, Houllier as being people that didn't necessarily play at a high level themselves but became good managers possibly because of that. Well, I mean, uh, not possibly because of it, but it may be something that has um, contributed to their ability to bring the best out of other people. Because you then speculate about, OK, so we've got these managers at the top level, mm. not all of whom are great players themselves. In fact, you could almost say that a number of those who are managing at the top level weren't great players themselves. So, some were, but, you know, it seemed to be a number who weren't. Or the opposite of the intuitive player who just was naturally skilled and was a genius, and we can all name Pele or mm. George Best or Maradona or whoever else. George Best managing football team. Yeah. Um, <laughs> would not necessarily have been the best managers mm -hmm. of football teams. But there are people who maybe it didn't come quite so naturally. 
Maybe they had to think more about their game. Maybe they trained really hard and had an excellent attitude. Maybe they had to work out the technical side of the game and how to kick that ball and whatever else. And if that were the case, you can imagine that those people might actually be better in communicating that to someone else. I, I, I won't tell you the name of, of the manager, but the story was given to me of someone who'd been a great player and became a manager. And in demonstrating to, to this out-of-form striker... Um, you know, how he might actually fix his, was clearly a fairly psychological problem, he'd lost a bit of confidence, just kept bashing the ball into the corner of the net and going, do it like that, like that, like that, and firing in goals all the time. And you think, you know, is that going to get the player mm. to resolve their issue and actually deliver better? Just because you can do it does not mean that, that they can. Then it's going to be about coaching, it's going to be about, you know, bringing the best out of them, it's going to be about maybe getting them to work with a psychologist or whatever they need to do to, to overcome that issue. There's a quote in your book from uh, Roy Hodgson at the LMA talking about uh, being a great horse doesn't necessarily make you a great jockey. Uh, is that something you think is, is accepted across the industry? That, in which case, what what can you do then to make uh, or to help great players become great managers? Is training an option? Or Well, I mean, um, that was Roy Hodgson speaking at an LMA event and I just thought it was an interesting line because, you know, Obviously, the two don't necessarily relate, and that's what he's saying, that um, you may or may not have been a great player. or Otherwise, um, in a lot of ways, it doesn't have an awful lot to do with how good a manager you become. So then we're into, well, how do you prepare managers? And um, obviously, they should be preparing themselves technically in terms of their coaching badges and so on, but also maybe given the importance of those other things about managing up to boards of directors, about dealing with the pressure, about dealing with the media, all of those other things, that they should be preparing themselves as best they can and learning as much as they can before they actually become managers. If they're getting one opportunity, they should be in the best position they possibly can before they get that opportunity. Um, and somebody said to me that, you know, you will never, no matter how many courses you do, you will never be as prepared. You will never quite understand what the reality is going to be like. But if they're not getting that um, opportunity through experience, then you've got to try and give them as, as much or as close to that as you possibly can, maybe in conjunction. Maybe the best combination at all of all is that you have done all of those things that tell you how you could do this and allow you to practice in a safe environment without, you know, where you can make your mistakes and learn from them. And um, you combine that with getting your experience somewhere so that it be that as an assistant or be that in lower leagues or however you do that so that those people can actually sort of develop themselves as managers. You wouldn't put somebody straight in as a chief exec on day one from a graduate scheme. Um, but effectively, sometimes that's what we're doing with football managers. Yeah, yes, you mentioned a case in point, Mark Lawrenson, who basically fell into football management at Oxford United almost by falling, uh, injured himself, um, was injured out of the game and basically made it sudden transition because of injury into managing instead. And you indicate in this book that he thinks that's part of the problem about why he didn't necessarily succeed at Oxford United because it's such a quick transition. I think there's, I mean, not just in football, but in a number of sports, and actually I suppose in a number of professions, the route that you take um, does have an impact on your success. I mean, for example, in, in football terms, is it planned or unplanned? You get people who are suddenly injured, mm. their career finishes, decisions are thrust upon them, or you've been a great servant at the club and we'd like to keep you, and is there a role that you could fit into and you either end up on the coaching staff or even, you know, as a caretaker manager because somebody happens to have left at that point in time. 
And if that's the case, you might hit the ground running and you might be fantastic, but you haven't got much in the way of preparation. You may not really fully have anticipated what that means. I remember uh, Stuart Pearce telling me a story and saying that he became caretaker manager. And he, this was at Nottingham Forest years ago. And then um, going into the, the dressing room on the next day, hello lads, and they said, you can't get changed in here because you're not one of us anymore. Mm. You know, you're the manager. And they made him go and get changed in the referee's room on his own. And suddenly realising I've crossed an invisible line. I'm now not one of the lads, I am the manager. And I think, you know, that there are issues to do with how that happens. Is it planned? How do you prepare for it? What do you have to realise? Uh, what kind of new skills will you need? And it's we do that in industries and we do that in other sectors where, you know, sometimes quite formally, I worked at one point for mm. Unilever and to get to the next level, you had to have done these courses and shown these abilities and got promoted by being on a high priority list or high potential list, whatever. Um, so a lot of sectors, we do have these pathways, but sometimes, for whatever reason, people don't follow a, a pathway and then they are left to find their own way and, and some of them make it and some of them don't. So is that what we need to, to produce, to get the best out of our managers and football managers? Do we need these career pathways? Do we need this training? And if so, do you think that the pro licence that's now appeared, plus courses such as your own, are helping give that structure and those pathways that football managers need? Well, I mean, obviously you'd expect me to say yes. <laughs> yes, obviously do. <dear. laughs> um, and of course, I, I, I wouldn't be saying yes if I didn't firmly, in fact, I wouldn't be working in it if I didn't firmly believe that we are actually having a benefit to, to football managers. Um, somebody put it to me that if you got just one thing from a course and it was one thing that made you better as a manager, then it was worth doing. And then I spoke to somebody who'd been on our course, he'd been a manager for some period of time, and I said to him, you know, how have you found it? He said, I'm probably about a third, 33% different as a manager, having done that course and with the ideas that I'd picked up um, after the course than I was before. And I thought, well, that's not just one thing, is it? That's, that's a lot of things. If you could change somebody's behaviour that much and they've realised that there are so many things that they could do different and better, and this is somebody who's gone on and done well. So you actually think, yeah, you can have an impact. You may be... Um, can't change somebody who may not have been suited to be a manager in the first place or not, or not to that extent but where people have got the aptitude so it's obviously partially about finding the right people out of the game and recruiting the right people and, and some process of um, identifying potential and then working through and helping to develop that potential in those people then I think that's very much what we should be doing. Professor Sue Bridgewater's Football management are from Palgrave Macmillan. Thank you.